0: I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. I remind you also that this is a letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome it has been called a missionary letter uh, because within it he says he'd like to come to them that's the first piece of it but also for the purpose of their helping him be conveyed on to do the work of missions in Gaul or what we would think of today as Spain. But nonetheless this is a book full of theological substance and Paul is logical in the way he organizes his thought in chapter 1 is absolutely no exception and so in verses 16 and 17 we had the free offer of the gospel the really good news expressed there and then in chapter 1 verses 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 we have Paul developing what could be said to be a biblical doctrine of sin and the human heart. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. This is God's word. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive their teaching. Oh Lord, you would give us insight and understanding. Oh, Lord, that you would build us up into the people that you have called us to be. Oh, Lord, that you would help us to have strength in the face of the watching world and in the struggle that we each and individually have with our own sins. Oh, Lord, make us to be a people through the teaching of your word who are pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question has been posed, what about the man born on an isolated island, the unreached in the jungles of South America, the noble savage, the natural born atheist, the island bound agnostic, how is it if a man has never heard the testimony of the scriptures, that you could say he would be held accountable to the teachings that are held within them. How can they have a God who they don't know about and have no clue even exists have any right to speak into their lives and over their actions? And you see the Apostle Paul takes these very questions up in this section Of chapter 1. Here he touches on Gentiles, or really every other people group that exists outside of the people of Judea, the people of Israel. And so, as we come to this, uh, there is, in my opinion, a fairly clear division in the text. And in verses 19 and 20, we'll study general revelation. General revelation. Then in verses 21 through 23, we'll study the sin of man. The sin of man. It's a right thing to mention that verse 19 follows verse 18. It is, as it were, the logical progress in Paul's developing argument. Verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is a universal statement. It exempts no person. And universal statements make people uncomfortable. They're stereotypical. They're very different from what we find as the language of tolerance in the world today. They lack nuance, some people expect. Universals make us comfortable, but look at what Paul says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God will pour out righteous anger upon all sin and all peoples. That's what Paul is saying. And here in verse 19, again, it is the logical flow of his argument. He follows it up and gives us some understanding of how this can be. Because the ancient mind, like the modern mind, could imagine a natural-born atheist, the noble savage, the island-bound agnostic. This idea that there's a man somewhere who's never heard. There's somebody who has no clue that there is a God or could be a God. In verse 19, he touches upon it and he says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's another general term, isn't it? It's universal. What can be known about God is plain to them. All people have a sense and an understanding of God. That's what he says in the very beginning of verse 19. But you see, this is the very root, the very ideal of what is often called general revelation. And if you're familiar with Christian theology, you know that we believe that the scriptures are the revealed and inspired word of God. We usually call that special revelation, that which reveals the heart of God that dictates the decrees of God in text and propositions and in persons. And then there is also what has come, come to be known as general revelation, or God revealing himself generally to all of creation through nature and providence. And you see, that's what he's touching on in verse 19 and what we are considering this morning. But one thing I want to note before we just skip on and go ahead, I don't know that this is absolutely central to the argument of Paul, but it is something that I want you to to notice. That Paul, in in the few words we've already read, he, he says that there are things that can be known about God with the supposition that there are things in God that are ultimately unknowable. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That's a, a big and a heady topic. And you might say, you know, Pastor, can you open that a little bit farther? Can you make that a little bit more clear? Other than to say that the Lord is so great and so infinite that you and I as finite creatures with small minds and small perspectives can never hope to attain an exhaustive, comprehensive knowledge of this eternal God. I don't think I can do much better than that. There are things in God and his person and his being that are just simply too deep, too high, too big for us to get our minds and our hearts around. But Paul doesn't focus on that. Rather, he focuses on what can be known. What can be known. What can be known about God, he says, is plain to them. Them is, well, all the people of the nations, All the people who would be listed in that group, who the wrath of God is extended against. And he says that what can be known about God is plain to them, but how so? It's because God has shown it to them. It's because God has shown it to them. There's something to be said here, and that is this. That the most simple and elementary truths about God... The scriptures are teaching us are plain to human beings like me and you. They're plain. They're easy to comprehend. They're easy to ascertain or to receive. It's, it's not a thing that requires this great mental exercise of developed philosophy and rationality. Rather, they're obvious They're obvious, and the reason why they are obvious is because God has made it so. Because God has made it so. And so another thing that I want to say to you is that in the creation of all things, God is revealing. He is active in this self-disclosure. That, after all, is what revelation is. It is self-disclosure, as if a curtain is being peeled back. As if something that you could not see by yourself is being made known to you. Like if there was a thing in a dark room and somebody shined a light on it to say simply, here it is. And you could see it in its facets, in its form. It would be obvious to you, not a thing all that difficult to perceive. And Paul is saying, what can be known about God is plain. It's obvious. No one can miss it. God has shown it, shown himself, to all of his creatures in the most basic aspects. That's huge. That's a wonderful thing. And Paul goes on and furthers that idea in verse 20, and he gives us an idea of a little bit more of what he's speaking about. He says, For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What has God shown his creatures? Two things that are categories, if you will. The eternal power of God and the divine nature of God his person, and his work. That there is a God, and that God is full of power. There is a God, and he is a creator. That he's not some distant, deistic, disconnected deity, but rather someone who is a creator intimately concerned with the lives of those whom he has created. I love this, verse 20, that Paul speaks of these two things, these, you know, the eternal power and the divine nature of God. He calls them his invisible attributes. How do you get your head around that? Let me ask you just a silly question. Can you see invisible things? Of course not. Of course not. Whenever Paul is speaking about this, he is speaking about the Lord impressing upon the hearts of his creatures through the things that he has made, these wonderful truths. The active revelation and pressing of himself upon his creatures. This is not just something that is the result of a sanctified calculus or the recesses of the thoughts or hearts of men. This is the work of God revealing himself in the things that have been made. People might ask, is Paul unique or is the pastor crazy in interpreting what Paul is saying here? I'd like to point you to other portions of scripture, things that I believe uh, Paul has in view. Uh, Think of the book of Psalms, uh, the 19th Psalm, verses 1-4. through If you'll turn there, you'll turn there, Psalm 19, 1 through 4. You will have heard this famous psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Do you see how the psalmist speaks of general revelation here? It's as if the heavens, the night sky, the sun, the luminaries, the moon. It's as if they have a mouth and they speak. And what are they saying? There is a God and He is great. He is full of power and might and majesty. All of these things that hang in the sky above your head are testimony that there is a God. They didn't just happen. This is no cosmic accident. No rational result of a big bang, rather the handiwork of a God who has created all these things. But the psalmist again returns, not just that the heavens declare, but the sky above proclaims. And day to day the creation pours out speech. That revelation being called words from a voice that are heard in the ends of the earth. Again and again, there is this insistence that all of creation, all of creation shouts loudly to you and to me, the creature, and even to the man on the isolated island. It testifies simply that there is a God who created all things and we owe him worship. Paul is recorded By Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 16 through 18, and he touches upon this again. In past generations, he, that is God, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. How does God communicate himself even to a people who have chosen to be pagan in their hearts? Through his benevolence, through a table of food set in front of them, through the sweet taste of it through the rain that falls from the sky upon the parched land and gives growth and gives drink to satisfy the thirst of humanity. These things shout loudly and effectively and truly that there is a God and that we owe him worship. Thinking about my own life uh, in, in this topic some of the things that impress, at least most recently, upon my mind and my heart, the truth of the existence of God is you ever just look at an apple? We're an apple country. It's overwhelming. In a few months, uh, we'll begin to see the blooms on the apple trees. It's absolutely gorgeous. And then they'll begin to grow, and the trees will begin to get really heavy with fruit. And in the fall, as the name implies, the fruit will fall you pick it up and you look at these apples and there are 15 different types of apples and just look at them and there's one apple at least that i picked up last season and i just marveled at it it looked like it looked like it'd been painted you know by the brush of a painter i mean the color beautiful reds and yellows like brush strokes almost like a van gogh painting and i just Look at it. I'm not even smelling it, I'm not even tasting it, I'm just looking at its wonder and just simply saying there's no possible way, there's no possible way something so beautiful has no artist who has made it, a creator who has given it. Another thing, the beauty and the joy that you feel whenever you see the toothless smile of an infant. I got that a lot lately. Got in the car from being gone for a few weeks, and what do I see? I see my two big boys, and then the little one, he's looking back at me as I put the suitcase in the car, and there's just a big old grin, a little scrunched up face, not a tooth in his head, just as beautiful as he could possibly be. No way that is just the accidental result of an unfolding universe. Last summer, we as a church went on a retreat and we were in the Swiss Alps and we were in some of the small villages uh, up above Interlaken and you just look at the glory of this alpine valley overlooked like it's being guarded by great big centurions these mountains covered in snow that if you clap your hands you just hear the echo and you just feel this big and yet there are these wonderful magnificent peaks and there's this just overwhelming feeling of finiteness and you simply think if all this exists there must be something so much bigger than all of it that made it and brought it into existence the clap of thunder the flash of lightning that reverberates through the land shaking your houses and making your hearts to skip I don't know, maybe you've never experienced this because you're so much better at math than me, but the seeming infinitude of mathematical equations. How can that possibly be? How can that hold together if everything is simply random? All of these things proclaim as if they have a voice and testify as if they have words to the truth that there is a God who made all things, who sustains all things who we owe our hearts to in holy worship, to simply praise him for his goodness to his creatures. But to what end? Why does Paul give us all this? I mean, does he want to just draw our hearts and minds to the natural world to revel at things? No, I think Paul is saying a little bit more here. He's pointing us to A significant and a staggering truth, and it's what closes verse 20. He says, all of these things are true. All of the revelation of God and all of his creation is true. So they are without excuse. The beauty of creation. Its magnificence, its greatness, its grandeur all of it pointing to the God of heaven, pleading with the hearts and the minds of humanity. There is a God, there is a God, and you should worship him. And the result is so that we are without excuse, so that we cannot stand before the Lord and say, if only I had known, if only I had heard, I would have believed. And he would say, it was shouting at you from the tops of mountains and the depths of caves. You have no excuse. That is the testimony of general revelation that God has shown himself to his creatures in the things that were made even from the beginning of creation. Verses 21 through 23 then express to us the result, sort of the other end of things, the rejection of the revealed God who has shown himself in creation. Look at it with me, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Having known God, they rejected him. That's the first testimony of verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. A rejection of the God revealed in creation and the work of providence, a denial of his rights, a rebellion against the one who created all things and all people and all places. Boy, that puts it squarely on someone else's shoulders, doesn't it? Instead of the test being brought before God, how is it possible? How is it possible that you could righteously bring wrath against this person that doesn't know you exist? The scriptures say, yes, they do. Yes, they did. And they rejected him. And they rejected him. They didn't honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. They didn't glorify him. The weight of the sin of a faithless man, woman, or child rests upon themselves. So that no man may shake his fist at God and simply say, You didn't do enough. You didn't pursue me enough. I had no awareness, and this is a great and terrible surprise. Can't be said. But you go on, it's not only that they are the ones that are guilty, that all humanity are guilty of this, but there is an effect of the rejection of God, even the general rejection of God as he has revealed himself in nature. Verse 21, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you notice that this is a transition? It's a transition from sense to senselessness. From rationality to irrationality. From wisdom to foolishness. They rejected God and became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. the effect of sin on the mind and the heart of man should not be discounted it blunts the intellect it, it numbs the heart the man who denies god simply says i just can't feel anything of his presence the scripture says yeah you're right you've rejected him so much so often until you're numb you're numb With a darkened heart, a foolish mind. Yeah, you're right. That's a terrifying and a desperate circumstance. But one that the scriptures give testimony to as well. And Christians, the simple thing I want to say to you is do not play fast and loose with sin. Thinking I can do this little bit. This thing, that thing, it won't have any effect. Oh, this is my private sin. The sin that I don't let anybody know about. You know, it's one of those that everybody does. It's not something I have to put to death. It really won't have any effect. I can always just confess it and repent of it. And friends, yes, you can absolutely confess and repent your sins. And there is a world of mercy and glory and grace. But sin does have an effect on us. On the mind, on the heart. Where we don't perceive the things of God, nor love the God who created us. He goes on and gives an expression for the founding of paganism. They're futile became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, it's a great exchange. Having once had all the freedom to worship the God of heaven, what is the heart of a man that doesn't know God and doesn't worship him do? that's full of sin and rejects him? Well, it just makes its own little deities. It's changing the immortal for an image and a likeness of a mortal thing. Whether it's the image of a man or an animal or a creeping thing. You see that's really what sin does isn't it Sin causes us to settle for less than we are meant to enjoy I mean that's that's at its basic element isn't it Think even to the garden to Genesis 3 what is man created for but blessedness and fellowship with God made in his image and after his likeness very good man and woman he created them Oh, if you eat this, you'll be like God. If you eat this, you'll be like God. Did God really say? Did God really say that he would kill you? What was the exchange? Fellowship of the God who they were already like. They exchanged it for a life of Independence where the image of God was marred within man and the fellowship between God and the creature destroyed because of sin. They settled for less. Doesn't our sin do the exact same thing time and time again, day to day, night to night? We exchange the thing that's best for our heart. We exchange the thing that draws us into fellowship with him. We exchange a good and a right relationship with a friend or with a spouse for the thing that we think is better. The insistence of our own proud heart, the insistence of our own lust. If I do this, I'll feel better. If I, if I just shout and result to anger, it'll be better, right? That's at least a lie we tell ourselves down deep in ourselves. If I go to him, to her, if I do this or that, it'll be better. And in any case, we're always settling for less. Sin has an effect on the hearts and the minds of man, on the hearts and minds of all of humanity. And it's not light and it's not small. It's unfulfilling and it's not life-giving and so we return again to the question of accountability. Whenever men stand before God, whoever they may be, from whatever tribe or tongue they may have come from, how can they be accused before the throne of grace if we had known? Pointing a finger, you didn't do enough, O oh Lord. Again, the scriptures simply say, yes, yes, He did. Yes, and yes, he did. There is a free offer of grace for those who have fallen. There is a mercy. There is a new birth. There is hope for the one that's lost, for the one whose mind has been made foolish, whose heart has been darkened. There is, and what is it? Well, it's that that we find in the special revelation and the person of Jesus Christ and the telling of the Holy Scriptures. There's one who came as one of us, lived among us under the law, and died for us, taking upon himself the wrath of the God of heaven. That if we would simply believe on him or rely on him alone for salvation, that we would be reconciled to God, called one of his children, a son, or a daughter. Will you put your trust in Christ? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of your holy scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these difficult teachings. Oh, Lord, that you would give us mercy. Oh, Lord, that we would be a people who would draw near to you by your means. That, Lord, we would praise you as we ought. Oh, Lord, that we would have hope through the blood of your Holy Son. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless our church, help us to grow in Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.